All right, so today we're going to um, be continuing with Matthew. We are getting towards the end. We are in the last at least six or seven chapters, so it won't be too long now. Um, we are continuing in the Passion Week narrative. So this is the week in which uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and we're leading up to what, will be, what we know is Good Friday, the crucifixion on, on a Friday, and obviously Easter on a Sunday. Um, and so we are in the first part of the week. Last week, we looked at this moment when Jesus... Uh, having come into town uh, early in the week, Sunday, uh, spent some time, got in a little bit of trouble, which we'll uh, kind of circle back and talk about today a little bit. Um, and then he went to Bethany outside of the city walls up over the Mount of Olives um, to spend the night, and he came back into town. And last week, as he approached Jerusalem, he found this fig tree that didn't have any figs on it. And we talked about how a lot of times we read this and we think Jesus is upset and he's maybe hangry. It's early in the morning, he hasn't eaten yet. Uh, and he curses this fig, fig tree and causes it to wither. Um, and a lot of us, re- and I know I did for a long time, read this and thought it was Jesus upset, and he was lashing out out of frustration and being uh, hungry in the morning. Um, and we talked last week about how that's actually not the case at all. And we looked at some Old Testament scripture and talked about how throughout the prophetic tradition, a fig tree stands as a symbol of Israel, of Jerusalem. Um, and Jesus finding this fig tree in Jerusalem with no fruit is prophetic for walking into Jerusalem and finding Jerusalem having lost its way. Uh, And that condemnation that comes upon the fig tree, the withering of the fig tree, will also come upon Jerusalem um, as a result of its rejection of the Messiah, right? But then he says to his disciples, not only are you going to be able to do this sort of thing, but you'll also be able to say to the mountain, get up and jump in the sea, and it will, right? We talked about how that uh, in Old Testament literature, is prophetic for providing a way of escape and salvation for Israel. It was prophesied that the Mount of Olives would split north to south and open, open up as the Red Sea had opened up. And when Israel was oppressed uh, by its um, enemies, they would be able to escape through that mountain. So the removal of the mountain is an imagery of salvation for the people. And so Jesus is saying, there is judgment that's coming because Messiah is coming and they, they will largely reject the Messiah. The world will reject Messiah. But you as my disciples will go out and tell them that, but you also offer them the salvation that comes along with Jesus, right? So you will provide the way out. So um, if you don't know Old Testament literature, if you're not steeped in that tradition, it's impossible to read that story and know what it means, right? Um, as many of us did not know. And like I said, I, for a long time, I didn't know that. Um, so that was yesterday or last week. And so this week we are back in Jerusalem and we're going to read here verses 23. We're in chapter 21, 23 down through 27. It'll be on the screens if you don't have a Bible in front of you. It says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, but then why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. All right. What was that, Johnny? la di da Right? So... What was that? I just say she's right. Yeah, you're right, right? Um, and, and we're going to talk about this more in depth as we go through, but Jesus clearly answers this question. He just doesn't answer the question, right? It's, it's clear to all those hearing what he's saying, but he's not saying it out loud. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about the setting here first. Where, where are they? 
Yeah, they're back in the temple, right? When he entered the temple. I've got some photos for you to look at today. This is an image of the temple, um, an old black and white rendering. Uh, and here you see the large courtyard, which is the court of the Gentiles. This is where anyone can come in. Um, and then as you get closer and closer to that Holy of Holies, which is in that tall building, right? Here's another photo of it, that tall section in the back. In there is the Holy of Holies where the high priest goes to offer the, the uh, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Uh, as you get closer and closer, you have to be more and more right with God, so to speak. So Gentiles and women, then Jewish men, sorry women, that's, that's the way it happened back then. Um, and then priests, high priest, as you get closer and closer, right? Um, but this gives you an idea of the scale. So they're back in the temple here, um, and out around the outer edge, you can see these columns. It was common practice for teachers to come into the temple and gather in this outer ring uh, and teach. And so Jesus, in all likelihood, would be doing this. So he's come back into the temple. You can see if you go back to this image, it's, it's a massive place, right? It's very large. Those little dots are people, right? This is a actually a model that a guy created in his barn, and he has all these little people to scale. So it gives you an idea of how long. He's, he spent like 30 years, and it's still not done working on this, right? It's a, it's a labor of love for sure, uh, but it gives us a good picture of what this was like. And so it's a massive area, right? They look kind of like ants, but those are people. Um, and so lots of different teachers, you can imagine, would be scattered throughout this colonnade. Uh, here is an image of it to scale inside. So if you're inside, you would gather in here, uh, and get around your teacher. And so Jesus has done this. He's come back to the temple. You know, at this point, he's half an hour, hour, some, some part later in the morning probably, he's speaking with people in this area. And they know who he is. Why? Is it because of a crowd of people following him everywhere? Well, yeah, he's got his disciples and a crowd following, so that's immediately interesting. But he's already been here once, right? He was here yesterday. What happened yesterday? Yeah, he calls quite a scene. This is the moment where he comes in and he throws out the money changers. John tells us that he braids a whip. He, <coughs> he comes in, he dries out all the animals, the cattle, the rams, the, the lambs, the goats, whatever the money changers have. We've talked about this process in which if you live far away, you would take your sacrificial animal, you would sell it in your hometown, you would bring the money to the temple, and then you would buy back an animal for sacrifice. And so that money changing, that exchanging is what's going on. It's a marketplace. And it was provided for in the Old Testament. It wasn't as if it was something wrong. But the way in which they'd gone about it, the way in which the, the temple authorities were extorting uh, people and, and making money off of it, Jesus didn't much care for. And so he make, John tells us he makes this whip. He comes in, he drives the animals out. Uh, again, this isn't an image of angry Jesus taking it out on the religious authorities. Yes? Wasn't it like the airport where a costs $5? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you want a Cinnabon, it's going to be $12, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit ridiculous, right? And, and, and they, they'd been, they were taking advantage of the people. Um, and uh, <laughs> Yes, Riker. He was angry too. Um, and so, yeah, Jesus is upset. And as always, when the religious authorities take advantage of the people, Jesus is upset. He doesn't care for that at all. And he lets them know. And so he did. He, he drove those animals out. Um, like I said, this isn't an image where he's angry and whipping the people, right? Because they're still there. The money changers and the religious stories are there for him to talk to after he does that, right? And so uh, some people, again, have images of Jesus, you know, whipping not only the animals but the people as he's mad. Like, that's, that's not going on, right? Um, but there was quite a scene, as you can imagine. And we also remember, what, what else happened? If you can look back in your Bible if you've got one open. Yes? 
Was that taking place, the market taking place? Yeah, the market was in that outer ring as well. Yeah, so you would, you would walk in this main gate, right? And somewhere in here, you know, if you're walking in the lower area where you see the big roof in the front of the screen, maybe like off to the right, well, we don't know exactly, right? But they, they would be inside that initial wall. So that activity took place inside the temple, all right? Um, and so there, we, we read about that, but then we also read about some responses, particularly of kids, what do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Yeah, so they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. What does that mean? Praise the king of the Jews. Who's the son of David? Yeah, the Messiah, right? And so they're, they're as you tell, if I remember correctly, it's kids, they're, they're shouting this, right? And it, that upsets the, the religious authorities, and they say what to Jesus? Yeah, don't you hear what they're saying? Right? And the expectation is, are you going to address this, Jesus? Because they're calling you Messiah. And how does a religious priest, high priest, or a, a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee feel about the children and the people calling him Messiah? You're talking heresy. Yeah, that's not so good, right? <laughs> no one claims to be the son of God. That's, he's a heretic. And so if he's going to have any standing in their eyes at all, he needs to renounce that. He needs to make them shut up essentially. And that's, their, that's the, the crux of their question. Do you hear what they're saying to you? What are you going to do about it? And he just kind of stares at them and goes on with life, right? Let the, let the children speak, right? And so that has gone on yesterday. And so he's come back into this temple. He's gathered somewhere in the outer court in all likelihood. Um, and then this all happens, right? So he's entered the temple. He's probably teaching. There's probably a crowd. And we have the chief priests and the elders of the people, right? Matthew, uh, the other gospel writers will group all of the religious leaders together. So you get the chief priests, the elders of the people, the scribes, the Pharisees, all in groups. For some reason, Matthew typically only talks about two of them at a time, but they stand for all of them, right? He's talking about all of these people, but he particularly wants to call our attention to the chief priests. Who are the chief priests? Well, they would be of the Sadducee class, right? Remember, we talked about the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees as two sects within Judaism. Pharisees are largely sort of a rural grassroots movement of religious leaders that are trying to rejuvenate uh, and bring back to covenant faithfulness the people. The Pharisees are the one with the power. They have, they're a smaller group, but they have co-opted with Herod and the Roman authorities, and they have rule and, and uh, dominion sort of over the temple itself. So that when we talk about chief priests, yes, you're right, we're talking about probably, probably the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, I'm sorry, um, and then the elders of the people are who? Are they the, uh, this is just a guess, are they the people that, like the spokespeople of the Yeah, they're essentially, think of them as like the political leadership, although the, the, the religious political divide is very blurred at this time. But they were not necessarily priests of the, the religious sect, but they were the, the council members and, you know, think of elected officials, those sorts of people, Right. And Matthew tells us they're not, he doesn't just say elders, he says elders of the people because he wants us to understand that they recognize or they sort of um, represent the people, right? And so this is those two groups, probably there are also scribes and there may be some Pharisees in, a, in that group that come to confront Jesus and they want to know a particular thing. What do they want to know? Who gives you authority? Yeah. How would you put that into your own words? Prove it. 
Yeah, yeah. Who do you think you are? Yeah, who puts you in charge? Right? Why would they ask that question? They're supposed to be in charge. But what is it about Jesus that even asks, prompts them to ask that question of them? Well, they feel offended. Well, they feel offended, right? It's more than offense. They certainly feel offended, but it's more than that. Right? What has he done? What did he do yesterday? And what might he be teaching about and doing again here? We don't have all the details of what he's done today. I've heard it. What was it? He healed people. He essentially told them they were doing it wrong. Yeah. He came in and tossed the system that they're in charge of. Right? He came in and this money changing system was part of the temple uh, logistics. And he came in and said, uh-uh, we're stopping that. Right? You guys don't get to do this anymore. Mike, you want to say something? I can tell. How many of us have known a young person, or when we were young, we got hired by McDonald's or someplace, and they have a system on how to run their business restaurant. And we as an obnoxious young man or a young woman say, you know, if you do it this way, you'll be better off this way, and we can account this. And what happens to you? Out the door you go. You just upset them. This yeah. is the same sort of thing, but... No. Only you. I see everyone's eyes lighting up. It's so funny to watch everyone. This is why I like the circle, by the way. I know y'all are guilty as me. <laughs> yes, don't upset authority. Yeah, but he you don't. I mean, yeah. I, as a teacher, I, I know how to handle that, but you know, you have smart aleck kids, and, uh, or my. Uh, anyway, you know other words for a smart aleck kid, and uh, <laughs> I, so that's all that's coming to my brain. Uh, anyways, you you don't want them disrupting your order, right? So, yeah, and so they come and they say, "What you know? By what authority are you doing these things? These things are the healing, the teaching, the preaching, the sh- the the casting out of the money changers. Certainly, the system that he just upheld, uh, uh, upheaved." Um, the way he came in to the city to begin with. Think back to what, what we know as Palm Sunday. The, the Greek word is the parousia. This was this, the parade that he brings in with him. You know, we talked about it. It's kind of comical. He's riding on this donkey. But the image, I mean, if, although comical, is of a conquering king coming into his city. And they're hooping and hollering. They're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Uh, like they're recogn- you know, he's coming in as the conquering Messiah. And they, they know that. If they didn't see it, they've heard about it. Right? And so all of these things, these are, that's what these things are. They are overtly messianic. Right? And so they want to know, one, who gave you this authority uh, because you're upsetting us, you're undercutting our authority, we are threatened by, by you. But even more importantly for them, you are claiming to be God and that is not okay. Right? They understand that the, the Messiah is the, well, they don't understand he's God, but they definitely understand that he's uh, the anointed one. Right? And that's, that's a problem, and we've talked about that in the past. That's a problem for all sorts of different reasons. One, religious reasons, uh, but two, uh, societal and, uh, yeah, societal reasons. What's going to happen in the world of Jerusalem if the king of the Jews shows up? Well, Rome will be just thrilled to have a new leader there. Yes, yes. I mean, and, and those things go hand in hand, right? Yeah, Rome, if, if, if we have a new king and we have a new authority and if Messiah shows up, if it's 
the, the pro, one of the problems with Messiah is Messiah was expected to overthrow Rome and free Israel, right? And so, to Mike's point, Rome's not going to like that. And so if we have a messianic claim in which there have been, Jesus is not the first person to show up and say, hey, I'm Messiah. We've talked about it before, right? There are other people in the past. There were going to be continued to be others as we go through the history of Israel. Actually, today, there's still Jewish men around the world that are, have claimed to be the Messiah because, of course, they don't recognize Jesus, right? Um, but when those messianic claimants, those who claim to be Messiah, came, they always came in a revolutionary style, right? So they're, they're trying to start a revolt. They're trying to overthrow Rome and create Israel as its independent state once more, right? And as you can imagine, Rome doesn't like that. And every time that happens, they come in with their, not their guns, but their swords and their chariots, right? And they put down the revolt. And the last, one of the last times this happened, they crucified thousands of people along. Yeah, it was, it was just lined up along the way from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. So as you made your pilgrimage, you would just see crucified Jew, after crucified Jew on your way. I mean, they just decimate anybody who gets in their way. And so the religious authorities, and again, remember what week this is. This is what week in the Jewish calendar? Passover. It's a massive festival. We've talked about the city ballooning from somewhere around 100,000 people to a million people. So it's crammed full of people who are, I mean, and, and think about the imagery of Passover. What is Passover in the mind of a Jew? One of the most sacred times. Yeah, well, why? What are they remembering? The Exodus, and what is the Exodus? Well, that, isn't that when they put the blood of the... Right, right. So the Passover is the meal that happens as the, the final plague that finally breaks the back of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, all right, get out of here. Right? It was the thing that actually freed Israel from the oppressive oppression of the Egyptians. So every time they get together and they remember that through their feast, they are remembering and they are on a revolutionary edge anyway. Because what they're expecting God to do is to lead them through a new exodus, and that means overthrowing Rome. So as a million people gather, I mean, think about any time you get a lot of people in one space, right? Things like mob mentality starts to take over. It's like a tinderbox, and you just strike a match and just let it drop, right? So Jesus coming into Jerusalem during the Passover week talking about Messiah and revolt, you know, which in their mind means a revolt and uh, throwing off Rome— set aside the, the offense that they're taking at their own personal standing and authority, it's a threat to their very existence because if Rome catches wind of this, they're in trouble, right? And it will be that that they leverage later in the week in order to get Jesus killed, right? From a Roman perspective, they're going to kill him because he's a troublemaker, right? The Jews want him gone because he's claiming to be son of God. So we've got both of these dynamics going on, right? And so they come to him in the, in the, or in the temple, right? And so... We assume this is prob probably on Monday, right? Because this is, as the stories go, all of them, this is the next day. So probably Monday, early in the week. And they say, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority, right? They want to know, according to what right do you have to stand up and to change our system, to teach these things, to upset the apple cart, to claim to, he hasn't yet claimed to be Messiah, but he's certainly allowed others to claim that for him, and he hasn't hushed them, right? He hasn't said, hey, come down, Right? And so his response is, is a really cunning non-response that leaves no doubt what his answer actually is, right? And what is his response? A rhetorical question. Well, it's not rhetorical. Yeah, it ends up being rhetorical because they won't answer, but it, it's very much a question, right? And this is a common practice. It, it, this isn't Jesus just being obtuse, right? 
I mean, he is, but this is the way that, the, that uh, public debate would happen, right? If someone poses a question, you could pose a counter question, right? And those, these questioning back and forth opens up the issue to broader thinking, right? And it was a tactic that was used by the rabbis all the time. So he's not doing something out of the ordinary. It, in fact, those watching would in some ways expect him to counter with a question, right, in order to sort of rebut and, and, and have this debate. It's done today. Yeah. It's, and we do it all the time. Yeah. And how many of you had a teacher who actually uh, responded with a question instead of an answer? Right, yeah. right. I mean, think, think if you've ever seen movies that have, you know, whether they're Eastern sages where people trek to, you know, Mount Tibet in order to get, get answers, right? They never get answers, they get questions that they need to go back and ponder. It's that same sort of dynamic that's going on here, right? And so Jesus responds and he says, okay, if you can answer this question for me, I'll answer your question, right? And then the question is... I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these yep. things. And what's the question? John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven yep. or of human origin? So what's the point of that question? What is Jesus actually asking? John's authority. Yeah, where did John get his authority? You tell me where John got his authority, and I'll tell you where I get my authority. Yes? Isn't he also saying, I'm not so stupid that I don't realize that this is a trap. I'm going Absolutely. to give you the same trap, yep. and you won't answer it. Absolutely. This is, this is one of those uh, times when, and this comes up, if you're, if you're paying attention, especially in Jesus' ministry, is I'll, it's, it's as, if, as if, if, if you are honestly seeking an answer, I'm going to give you an answer. Right? People who are really seeking God and Jesus, he answers. Right? But if you're going to do something nefarious with the information, I'm not going to give you that. Right? And so some of it is, why do you want to know? Right? Some, of, some of that dynamic is going on here. Right? And he knows they're trying to pin him down to say the thing that he implies. They want to say it out loud because as soon as he says that, what can they do? Kill him. Well, they can't kill him because they're under Roman law and they're not allowed to. But they're dragging him in front of the Sanhedrin in front of the council and having him tried as a heretic, right? And he knows that. And so to someone out in the middle of the field or at a well, or you know, like he will say things that make it very clear that he is the Messiah because they need the Messiah. They're, they're looking for God authentically. He'll, he'll show himself to them. But if you're just looking to pin him to a cross, he's going to play games with you, right? And that's what he's doing here. Right? And so he responds and says, well, you tell me where John's authority came from. Right? He knows full well what this question is asking. Right? I mean, he, he's asking, is John, was John sent by God? That's the question. But he knows what that does to the religious authorities standing there with this massive crowd. Right? And, and they know right away because what, what do they start doing? Start discussing it among them. No, they don't start discussing. <laughs> they start arguing, right? Because now it's like, what do we do here? And they, they, they have realized that now they're caught and the tension amongst their group is rising. You know how it goes. When everything's going well, everybody gets along. When things start to get tense, you know, with your, and your business and resources get tight, people start looking at each other and sort of blame games. And, you know, you know how that dynamic happens, right? And so this has happened here. And keep in mind, this is a culture that very much cares about public honor and shame, right? And so there is certainly everything we've talked about going on, but there's also this element that they are in front of a lot of people, right? And they have come to call Jesus out in front of all these people. 
And they think they've got him, right? And they're going to think a couple times this week they've got him, right? But he's very adept at twisting their own words and turning the subject in or, or the topic in order to throw it back on them. And now they're in the public eye, forced to answer this question, and they realize what? They have two options, right? If it's of God's authority, what's the problem for them? And so is Jesus. Well, it's, one, the implication is so is Jesus's. But if it's God's authority, how did they respond to John the Baptist? They accepted him. No, they did not. <laughs> no, I meant as with, with, with Jesus, if, if they say if he... Oh, yeah, yeah. The implication is, yeah, then they would, they would have to accept him. They would have to accept, yeah. So if they say John's Bap- John the Baptist came from God, they would have to acknowledge John and his ministry. And they are refused to do that. They did not accept him when he, when he was there. Remember, he, they go out to sort of see what's going on, and John's like, you brood of vipers. Like, they definitely were butting heads. Right? They did not get along. And they rejected John and his authority. Right? So they can't say it was of God because they have to go back on every judgment they've made about John up to this point. Right? And there's a host of people. There's probably several hundred people listening to this exchange. Yeah. They're the people, more than likely, many of them had gone out and been baptized right. by John. Right. So those people, listen, I think the dynamic of what's happening here, we tend to think of our public gatherings today as smaller than this, or we have loudspeakers and microphones. This would be some of this, these questions would have been exchanged throughout the crowd, all the way from the front yeah. to the back. It would have been yeah. echoed. It's, it's like doing the wave at a baseball game. Like the, the exchange would be relayed all the way back. Like, you're, yes, and, and, and as this kind of butts up, you know, the tension grows here. What, what do you think is happening to the crowd? <laughs> Well, they're starting to worry, but it's growing. People are like, there's, there's trouble over in the corner. Let's go, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just human nature, right? They're hearing about this interchange and this, this power play that's happening. They've heard that Jesus the troublemaker is here, so they want, they're interested anyway. But now, now the, the bosses have showed up. Let's see how this goes, right? And so there's a natural human curiosity. So this crowd is lo- probably growing and becoming more and more large. So the point when we get here, when this question comes, they realize if they said from God that they have to go back on everything they've said about G- um, John, Right? And if someone can grant that authority to someone outside the priestly caste, well, that also means that, well, Jesus could claim that authority. It's possible, right? And they can't let that happen. They can't acknowledge that either, right? So they have strong reasons for why they want to say no, but they also can't say no. Why? To what Mike just said. Yeah. This massive crowd that's hearing this exchange, to Mike's point, they loved. John the Baptist. Whether or not they baptized him, he's this figure now. He's been, he's been executed, right? He's essentially been martyred for the cause, right? So posthumously, we look back at people and we think they're way better than a lot of times than they were, right? And so even if they didn't much care for John at the time, right, he's grown as this figure of their imagination in popular culture. Hey, I got, hang on a second, Amy. Yeah. It's not been too long ago. We don't know. So Jesus' ministry was three years, right? So it was sometime in there. As Matthew tells us, it was like 10 chapters ago. I think it's back in 11 or 12 when he's cru- or executed. Amy, you got a question? I did. So if the chief priests, yes. why did they even entertain his question? Well, that's after they're probably asking the same question after this. <laughs> like what? Why even, like, 
Why didn't they just sort of... Because, okay, so part of that is the dynamic of the culture, right? So it's a lot easier today to say, I'm just not going to justify that with an answer. But in this culture where there's honor and shame, the challenge has been laid down publicly. So to walk away from the challenge is to essentially say, you got me, right? And this is going on, and this is a big part of the dynamic uh, of Paul and his letters and the way that he goes into the public square and, and his polemic or his argument against the, the Judaizers in the letter to the Galatians. Like, there's a lot of um, face-saving that goes on in this culture because if you aren't good at it, then your credibility is shot. So to just turn and walk away would say, you, you Jesus, you're right, you're better than us. It would be admitting defeat, right? And they, in essence, do because turning them to say, we don't know, like they are saying, you got us. So, but they can't say one of the two, th- neither answer is good for them, right? They either turn the public against them, right? And all the people there start shouting them down or they acknowledge John the Baptist as coming from God and then they have, a, a, I have another credibility issue because for now a year, year and a half, however long it's been since uh, John the Baptist was beheaded, they have, and, and before that during his ministry, they have spoken out against him, right? So they're in a catch-22, right? They can't, they can't answer. And so he, they don't. They say, we don't know. And he responds to them and he says, okay, so what? Right, what does he say? Yep, I'm not going to tell you then. Right? If you're not going to tell me, I'm going to tell you. Right? Right? Because his question puts them at risk, but their question puts him at risk. If you're not going to be brave enough to stand up and say what you think, I don't have to either. It's essentially his response. But what, is, what, is, what would his response be if he answered? If he did provide an answer, what is By God. By God. Right. I mean, John the Baptist claimed this. The people think this, right? It is, it is, it's not left to the imagination what Jesus would have said if, there, if he had answered, right? And, and everyone there knows that. It's clear to them. Jesus has made it very clear that he and John the Baptist are like this, right? They're cousins, but they are linked. Over and over in Matthew's gospel, they're linked. In the, in the beginning, they're linked, Right, in the way that John prepares the way. Right? If you think back in the, in the different, different ways, right? John, John talks about the stronger one, and then when Jesus comes, he says, this is the guy I'm talking about. Right? So John links them. Right? Jesus, at the moment, undergoes the baptism of John in order to take the mantle from John to carry on the ministry. Right? What was Jesus, or John's message? What, what is he famous for shouting? Repent. Why? Not just repent, but repent. For the kingdom is near. What are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Matthew? The same thing. Repent. The kingdom is near. Right? He uses the very same words because he acknowledges that the thing that John has done has been to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he's now picking up that mantle. And so he's the next in line. Right? It's, a, it's a baton passing off. Yes. Even, they're even like prenatally. Yeah. So when Mary comes pregnant yeah. to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, First thing she says is, my baby in my womb leaped when you walked in right. to greet the yeah. baby in your womb. You know, it was like immediately absolutely. recognition yeah. that this is some yeah. destiny. Meeting. And that's, that's in Luke's gospel, but you're absolutely yeah. correct. They're linked there in that way, right? Well, and Jesus acknowledged John and said, there's nobody greater 
right, right. We're, we're getting there, right? So when, when Jesus' or John's disciples come to ask him, so there's, there's been a period since that baptism when, when John said, this is the guy. He's now in prison. If you think back to that week, he's, he's probably wondering, like everybody else who's trying to follow Jesus, like, are you the guy? Because you're not doing the things that we thought you were going to do if you are, right? And so there's some reason that, that John, when he's, after he's been imprisoned, right, sometime later, would send his disciples and say, are, are you actually the one we, that we expected, that we were hoping for, when he's already declared you are? And Jesus responds, that's where he says, go tell John what you've seen, right? The, the lame walk, the, the deaf speak, right? And the poor have good news preached to them, the sight have blind. And, like he, and, he, and he's listing off all the things that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. So he's answering, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm doing all the things. Like, you all have built the Messiah up as this militant revolutionary, if you go back, that's, that's not what the Scripture says. And so he quotes the actual prophecies to say, this is what the Old Testament says, and this is what I'm doing. And, and his answer is yes. Jesus' first public discourse is in a synagogue. They hand him Isaiah. And what does Isaiah say? The lame will walk, the blind will see. Right. But after that response, he goes on, to her point, to praise John. I talk about how there's no greater prophet and, you know, like, and I am taking up his mantle and he came before me. And so he, he himself links them together, right? And he compares their ministry to each other. And, and then we've also seen people outside the disciple group look at Jesus and link him with John the Baptist. If you think back to Herod, there's this little interlude where Herod says, who is this Jesus character? He must be John the Baptist whom I beheaded, raised again, right? So he even sees the link. The things that Jesus are doing are very similar to the things that John the Baptist did. And so it must be a resurrected, more powerful John the Baptist having come back from the dead. Right? And then even later, Jesus will ask his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And one of the responses is, well, a lot of people say that you're John the Baptist. Right? And so that, they're, all that to say there are people outside that have linked them. So they are intrinsically linked in, in, in Jesus' own understanding, in the public's understanding that Jesus and John the Baptist are somehow like right next to each other, right? And we've talked about how Jesus and Jesus was saying, right, John is laying the path and I will follow him, right? He was the forerunner. He's the prophet that comes to prepare the way. That's the way that Matthew and Mark open their gospel, right? It is the voice crying in the wilderness to make ready the path, right? And in that part, Jesus is talking about how they, they murdered they put to death John the Baptist, and they will do so with me as well, right? John the Baptist is carving the path, and Jesus is coming in behind him, right? And that is going to end up running to the cross, right? So they're very much linked together. So the point is, and all the people would say, John the Baptist had God's authority. And so if Jesus, being so intrinsically and closely linked, is doing the same things and even going further than John the Baptist, well, he must also have that authority, Right? If the baton is passed from John the Baptist, who had God's authority, to Jesus, that authority, likewise, goes with it. Right? We know, of course, that it's even more intrinsic to Jesus than simply a passing the baton, because he is himself God. Right? So he is the authority. It's not that he has authority or was given authority. Authority is his, by the very nature of who he is. Right? But he's not prepared to say that. So he absolutely gives them a response, and there is no doubt in anyone's mind hearing this exchange what Jesus intends for them to understand. But what he won't do is say it out loud. Why not? It's not time yet. Yeah. 
right? It's not yet. It's Monday. It's not yet Thursday, right? When they're going to come, right? It's going to become more and more uh, apparent because he's going to continue to do messianic things and say messianic things. There are going to be other questions that come that try to pin him down, right? But it won't be until the actual trial. And even then, right, they accuse him, and Jesus' response is, well, you said it, not me, essentially, <laughs> right? But he, he, in that final moment, kind of acknowledges it, right? But he knows if he says it today, he's going to jail today, right? And he's got more, more trouble to cause for the rest of this week, right? Not for trouble's sake, but he's got more eyes to open, more teaching to do. Matthew doesn't tell us a lot of it, but presumably he's going to be doing some more miracles, right? And, and helping people to understand what it is that he's here to do and will do here in just a matter of days. Does that make sense? And isn't it logical when you know your end is near, you plan your days very carefully. Yeah. You know what you have to do. Sure. Well, and to that point, we've, we've talked in weeks past about how the entrance was planned. He's probably made preparations where to stay. You know, like this week, this is what he came for, right? He knows how this week is going to go by and large. There's some wiggle room for discussion or disagreement about whether he knows everything about every moment of the week or whether he just knows he's going to cause trouble. He knows he's going to die, right? And even then, if he didn't know from the very get-go that he was ultimately going to die, although he certainly tipped his hat, you come into Jerusalem during Passover and say the things he says, you're going to die. Right? That's, that's, that's just obvious from any, any outsider. Again, you start causing the trouble, making the claims you're going to make. The authorities are coming down on you, Right? And like I said, every messianic claim up to this point, claimant up to this point, ended up on a cross, right? So we know how this plays out. So there's nothing, there's, there's no question in anybody's mind if he says I'm from God, where this goes, right? Because as we said, the Jewish authorities can't crucify somebody because they're under the they can do everything up to the point of actually putting somebody to death. That's Rome's job. But when he says I'm a I'm the Messiah they can go to Rome and say, hey, look, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews and he's stirring up the people and they're going to be like, ah, we can't have that to the cross with him, right? Because that's what they do with revolutionaries. You want to stand up to Rome? We'll show you what happens, right? We are bigger, badder, stronger, and we're going to make a public display of anyone that tries to stand up to our authority, right? So Jesus and everybody knows if he says, yes, I'm God, where that, end, where that road ends, right? And he's not quite ready to do that yet. You want to say something? Rome was brutal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Horribly brutal. Brutal. I mean, if if you study Roman history, you should weep and just have your stomach turn at what they did to, for punishments and things. It was vile. Yeah. And, and the only yeah, I'll stop there. well, and it it was. I mean, crucifixion is probably chief among them. We'll we'll talk about that when we get there. Exactly like what that'll be kind of a squeamy day. I'll let you know ahead of time when that happens. Because, and I don't, I, we won't talk about it because I want to make you squirm in your seat, but we need to understand what, what this man went through for us, right? And so, but that's another conversation for another day. But Time to think about. Yeah. Knowing that it was going to happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, for three years since, he'd, since he came to John the Baptist, and there's that public moment where he baptized and he gets thrust to the wilderness and he comes back, he knows where it's going. You don't come on the scene claiming to be a Messiah and not know where that goes. You know what's going to happen to you, right? Unless by some miraculous state, God does step in and overthrows Rome through some actual miracle. But by and large, you're, you're going to die, right? Rome's not going to have that. 
and to the point they do it publicly. Like crucifixion was a public act to say to everybody, see what your Messiah did. It's why Pilate puts king of the Jews. Here, here's your little king of the Jews. Look what we great powerful Rome do to your king. Right? It was a, he made a mockery of Jesus. And it's greatly ironic, of course, because it's true. Right? But this is what Rome does. Right? And so Jesus is not going to have that. But at the, at, the, at the core of all this, like if we step back from all of what we just said and say, what is this little interchange about? How would you summarize it in a, in a word or a brief sentence? I'd say trying to trap him. Trying to trap him? Yeah. His authority's question. Authority, right? This is a moment where they want to, I mean, this is, again, this is, if we go back to, I asked you, like, what's another way of phrasing their question? It is, who do you think you are? Right? I mean, Chris, he's not going to back down. Oh, yeah. He's not going to back down, that's for sure. Right? And one of the things that's very clear is he's incredibly brilliant. He's very cunning. And so they, they give him a question. They, they're pretty sure they've got him on the ropes. And he comes back and it turns the tables real quick. I'm going to see it happen here a couple times before the end of the week, right? When he does get crucified over the next coming weeks, when we, as we're walking through this, we're going to see him pull this same sort of jujitsu move where they come at him and he kind of uses their own force against them and turns it back on them, right? He's very smart, which you, you would kind of expect. He's God, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but at the end of the day, this is about God's authority, right? And what, what got them upset to begin with? What, what has just happened the day before? What happened at the temple? Yeah, well, we talked, yeah, we've talked about it. It's not, not a trick question. Yeah. Remind us what happened the day before. The things that happened at the temple. Yeah, yeah. The, the tossing of the table, the, the public declaration as he walks in, he comes in as a king, right? He's claiming this authority, and they are, they're upset. Now, we have the authority. Yes. He made them look bad. He oh, yeah. No. with their money-making Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you mess with people's money, and you make them look bad. Right. It's, Exactly. Yeah, let's be honest. Like these this money changing event in the temple during a time when all of Israel is descending, this is money making time. This is the time you fill the coffers for the coming year. Right? This, go back to our weeks on tithes. We talked about how there are three Old Testament tithes, right? This is the time when one of those tithes are brought. Brought to Jerusalem for the temple for whose use? These people, the leaders, the, the, the cast of Aaron, the Levites, the temple overseers, right? They are the recipient of what's being brought this week. This is their week. Plus, it was like how many people came into Jerusalem for the Passover? Right, yes. This is like, this is like the 4th of July. This is like Christmas at Macy's. This is like, you know, yeah. this is... Multiply them all. Yeah. yeah, all of that's true. Did they ask him about him too? Like, the day before, they, when that happened, they confronted him. It's kind of like, what do you, what do you think you're doing about me? Yeah. The, the, the mouths of babes. Yeah, right. He said, aren't you going to, like, at that moment, they're like, aren't you going to... They're, they're worried about the money changing, but they hear the claims of, of him being son of David, and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't you going to do something about that? Right? He's just kind of like, nah, I'm not... <laughs> I'm going to go back to Bethany and take a nap, right? Uh, I think it's funny that this story the day before is called the cleansing of the temple. And it's by that phrase that we use. And then Jesus said, 
the same sort of thing. I'm here, this is the house of God, this is my own. Boy, he just set the parameters really high. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, what, what was his accusation at that point, right? This is meant to be a house of prayer, but turn it into what? Den of thieves, right? I mean, you want to talk about an offensive statement, right? It's right up there with you brood of vipers that came out of John the Baptist's mouth, right? He's, he's not kind to his authorities in this moment, and they understand it, right? But he's come and he's, he's upsetting the apple cart, right? He's literally tossing the tables. He's undoing the systems that they're using to oppress the people, right? That he's undoing the systems that for thousands of years have been in place, right? And isn't it odd that this system is a religious system? It's supposed to serve God, and yet it's serving their pockets. Right. And they're still oppressing the Israelites, their own people. Yeah. And if that doesn't speak to us today, I'm afraid we're missing some points. Well, let's talk about that. That's a nice segue, Mike. Thank you. No, no, don't be sorry. The rest of you are going to be sorry because we're going to talk about this. Like, what, what, does this like, what does this scene say to you today? Right? When we talk about questions of authority, when we think about what it is that Jesus has done, the tossing of the temple, the, uh, the, you know, the, the chaos that is, he's creating in order to refine, change, correct the way things are going, Right? How does that map? Does it map at all? <laughs> Mike says no. Does it map at all onto what's going on in your life or the world as you see it? Well, I, you, even though we're going to face different challenges, spiritual challenges, the importance to me is, is the obedience. <coughs> the word itself got, got to be fulfilled. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling. He already knew that he was going to be challenged. He already knew he was going to be questioned. His authority, his presence, the whole nine yards. But he was, he was, he was being obedient to show us, to set an example for us today, how important it is to be obedient to the word. Okay. How many people love that word, obedient? <laughs> if you're a parent or you have kids, you love it, right? But if you're on the other end of it, if we're talking about God's authority and our obedience. How many people are like, yeah, <laughs> I love it, right? Well, are we talking about two different things? Yeah. We're talking about the religious institutions sure. of the world, all the religious institutions of the world. We could make them, you know, everything from organized Christianity to Buddhism to Hindus who just have like started to stomp out all their cohorts the Muslims, you get all the religious institutions are self-maintaining in the same way and they become political <clears throat> entities instead of the hand of God. They are not in, in general even interested in doing what God says to do. They have their own agendas. Every Often. one of them. And, yes. and when you talk to a non-Christian, which you should do, which you probably do anyways. What do they say to you of why they don't believe in Jesus or in God? What's one of the first things that comes up every time you talk to people like that? 
Aaron? Money. <laughs> Money. What yes. else? All Christians are hypocrites. Hypocrites. Mm -hmm. All the Right, that's what I was thinking. What was it? If there is a God, then why is there so much yeah. negativity and, and So that's a big that is a big question, but the other like we actually know, we have the data. We know that the reason people outside the church don't want to come to church, the, the top answers are they all just want my money, they're hypocritical, they're judgmental. Right? Th those we know that's true. I mean that's a big question, don't get me wrong. But when people when asked, it's these other things that we've said, right? And the church in their eyes has become exactly what the temple was at this point. Right? It's just a it's just a money grab. It's an authority grab. Right? Who's been in a church before what was it? Some of it is. Yeah. Some of it is. they're not wrong. Right? Yeah, you got creatures flying in private jets and yeah. wearing nine thousand yeah. dollars. So before you leave today, make sure those plates are full. No, yeah. <laughs> right? This is one church that doesn't do that, which is you know why I'm here. So. You believe you'll be poor. <laughs> so I mean we, we do know that, but like so the question is, like, what does Jesus say to that? What do you think Jesus would do, right? And I've, I've, I, every church I've ever walked in since I've sort of graduated college and really started to think through this stuff, right? I just, I sit in churches and I think, okay, like, if Jesus walked in today, what would he do, right? And, and usually that's just like, do I think Jesus would come in and be like, yay, you guys get it, right? right? How many of us have sat in churches where we're like, yeah, this is awesome. This is exactly what Jesus wanted for us to be doing during this time. Right? And how many of us sat in churches and sat, sat, in, sat in churches <laughs> and thought, you know, if we step back from it, we're like, man, this is just a lot of stuff. You know, like it, it, there's something, it, if nothing else, there's something missing here. Right, right, right? And that something missing here is often the reality that, that a lot of us have grown up in a church and we have rituals and we have things that we expect to happen in churches. How many people have been to other churches? Just in Zanesville, right? Describe to me the order of a church service. Hmm, exactly. Tell me what the church is, what happens in the service? First, they do a sing prayer, then they sing music, then they ask for offerings, then more songs, and then the service. Then the sermon, right? Yeah. yeah. Sound familiar? Right? So, it, and there's nothing wrong with, like, please hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we do the same thing, right? There is an order and a, and a liturgy, I hate, people hate that word, but liturgy just means an order, right? Um, a, a way of doing things to facilitate. The problem, the problem is, all of that stuff was originally intended to facilitate the people's unification and time spent with God, right? But a lot of times, that has developed over the years into some really meaningless stuff, Right? And for some of us, we've been, we, we have been in part of it for decades, right? I mean, my first church was First Pres. Were we part of First Pres when I was born? Okay, so my first experience is First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. First. First, first, first Presbyterian. <laughs> right? And you bet they, they, they know it's first. I've got a friend from high school who still goes there and I see photos of it. And it's still... It's the church that was in the movie Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. If you've seen that movie, you've seen the inside. I mean... High church, high liturgy, and for someone who's well acquainted with that and understands what the meaning of all that is, it's got, it, it is meaningful, right? And so I don't, I don't want to knock it, but how many of you, if we broke out, for example, the Book of Common Prayer and started reading through corporate prayers and using all these theological language, which I know I use too much of anyway, 
right? You don't understand the words. You don't understand the meaning. If we just, how many people have been in churches, and I know this church has the history of reciting the, the Lord's Prayer, right? For how many of us is that just words when it comes to that time? Like if we're really honest with ourselves, right? It actually takes work to say that with intention because for a lot of us, it just becomes so routine that we just say it, right? And it's nice if you do know how to say it. Of course, yeah. yeah. And, and since two-thirds of the scriptures are written in poetic form, they are meant to be memorized as poetry. Sure. And sure. in times of trouble, you say just like Jesus did when he's on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God. And the, the, the Christian legend is, is that the rest of the people on the ground continued the psalm and quoted the whole psalm, which talks about his bones being pulled apart. They knew their scriptures. We should know them. But it comes back, may I tell yeah, <laughs> I, this is an exciting conversation. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's really an important one because, and, and I know for some of us, it's it, and even for me to a certain extent, it steps steps on my toes, right? Because we got to step back and, and think through. Like, let's let's take a second here, right? So for some of us who are grown up and we're steeped in that tradition, it's meaningful, right? We had a week months ago, where we talked about the three main groups of people who have left the church. And I, talk, I mentioned to you that in the last couple decades, we have lost more people in terms of percentage and numbers of the church in America than we have gained since America's founding, right? It's called the great de-churching, right? We talked about the, 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 some of the primary reasons and the themes for why people left the church. Spiritual hurt, uh, just doesn't fit my needs anymore. I got out of the habit, especially with COVID, and I never got back. I just don't see the point. Like, there, there, there are various reasons for why that has happened, right? But it's a, it's, a, it's a truth and reality. And one of the major themes is it's not meaningful to me, right? And so even if we're some of the ones sitting here thinking, man, it really matters to me that there's that liturgy, right? It really matters to me that it's like the church that I grew up. We got to step back and understand for the majority, unfortunately, of people who have grown up in the church or almost all the people that come in from the outside, it doesn't have that meaning, right? It is, it is a hollow ritual, right? And some of that is we need to educate them on it. And some, another part is Jesus is standing in the court ready to toss some tables, right? Because a lot of times we've created these rituals in our mind and we think they're important, but those rituals can oftentimes and very easily become idols in and of themselves, right? The Lord's Prayer, Jesus recites to his disciples why. We're just going to take that as an example today. Right. They come and they say, dear Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says what? Here's how you can pray. Did he say, here's what you pray? No. Right? The point of the Lord's Prayer is not to be recited ad nauseum. The point of the Lord's Prayer is a model by which we pray. In fact, God says this over and over. I don't want your hollow, meaningless repetition. I want your heart. And so what Jesus says to his disciples is, when you come to God, recognize that God is holy. Hallowed be thy name. 
right? Recognize that He is the Creator. Bring to Him your confession. Forgive us our sins. Ask for the willingness and the ability to do that for others as we forgive those around us, right? Ask for His provision in your time of need. Give us our daily bread, right? These are pieces. They're themes. It's a model. And what Jesus doesn't want, what God doesn't want, is a church for hundreds and hundreds of years reciting a liturgy that six generations down the road has lost a meaning, right? And for our world, that is largely the case, right? And we have a church, and I don't mean Emmanuel, but the church that has so done the same thing for so long that we can't see another way to do anything, right? But we have to, we're staring in the face the reality that the way we do church doesn't connect. I mean, the result of that study that was nationwide is that for various reasons, the things that every church does, the, the order of service and the way the church presents the gospel to the world through this time on Sunday morning and in other ways is missing the mark. It's just not hitting anymore. Right? And if it's just going through the motions in order to reinforce itself and to keep itself in existence, right? Just give me enough people to pay the bills, right? Just give me, guys, go out and get some more members so I can pay my salary, right? What's Jesus going to say to that? No. <laughs> no. Probably a little bit more tasteful than that. Yeah, well, he'll come in here with a whip, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's a, we got we to gotta be continually thinking, like, are, are we doing the thing that God has put us here to do, right? And we're here to worship on Sunday morning. We're here to learn more about God, more about Jesus and what this life is about. But most importantly, we're here to become Jesus for the world, right? It's a scary thought. It is a scary thought, Right? But I think part of the, part of the question we have to ask is, what are the tables in our lives independently, individually, but also corporately? What do we need to rethink? Right? What do we need to rethink? Right? And I'm not... Some of you t- take a deep breath. <laughs> I know we just... We tossed a couple tables in here today, this week. <laughs> right? right? We're not coming at you full bore just to wreck the church. Like, that's not what we're talking about. But what we want to do, and this is part of what we're going to try to do this year, is take a step back and think through the way that we do things, our systems, our processes, uh, the, the order of service. Is there another way to do it? Right? Does it have to be announcements, music, offering, prayer, sermon, music, goodbye? Right? Every single church you walk into is that. Yes? What? It's going to take us 50 years to I don't think so. That's, I mean, that's the scary part. We, we gotta get this. Okay. All right. we, we are running out of time. I know. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna end up just doing one song. Um, so guys, just be prepared for that. We'll just do the first one. Let's do this little light. Okay, we'll get that up there. Yeah, yeah, the second one. Um, the Akedah, which is the, the Hebrew word for this Abraham-Isaac story in the Old Testament, right? It came up in the, the daily reading in the church calendar last week, I think. This time where God looks at Abraham and says, go, go sacrifice your son for me, right? 
And we look at that and we think, oh, this is a terrible thing. Like, and and it, the, there's some serious questions that come up, right? Like, who is God that he would call, he would call for, ch- for child sacrifice? Who is Abraham that he would even consider it? Like, how many parents in here are like, yeah, I'd go kill my son because God told me to? Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Right? And, and we, we just think about, a lot of us think, and for good reason, this is a horrific story, right? But when you read it real closely, it's not a story about God giving an order for child obedience. I mean, that's the story. But what it's about is God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham and Abraham's trust in God and his authority to be faithful to his covenant, right? Because God has told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. That son is Isaac. Through that son, the entire world is going to be blessed through a great nation. He's made that promise, right? It's a covenantal relationship that he entered into. And the question here is, Abraham, will you trust that that promise holds true even if I do something as ridiculous or as counterintuitive as ask you to sacrifice that very son, right? And the thing is, Abraham says, yeah, I am. Because in the, liter- in the words, if you pay attention, when they get to the Mount, Mount Moriah and it's time for the sacrifice, Abraham grabs Isaac. They have traveling companions they brought with. And he says, you stay here. We're going to go over there and worship God and we'll be back, right? But he very clearly says, we are coming back. I'm taking Isaac over there and Isaac and I are coming back, Right? He knows something's going to, he, he probably has no idea. And I'd be lying if I don't think that there's a big, you know, voice in his back of his head saying, you are insane, <laughs> right? And, and he's probably racked with doubt. But the point of the story is, despite the fact that he was told to give up his son, Abraham trusted so deeply in the promise that God made him that he would go to the point that he's going to build the pyre, which is the pot stack of wood. He's going to put Isaac on it. And he gets all the way to the point where he's got the knife in his hand, trusting that God's going to put the brakes on it at the last minute. So he's like, God, you got to do something because you promised me the son, right? And he does. And he gets here, and God says, nope, you better stop. He says, turn around, there's a lamb right there. Right? And he says, now I know that you will trust me, right? It's obedience, but it's obedience to what? The authority of God, but who is God? God is the God of covenant. God is the God of love and of promise. Right? It's not God being an authoritative dictator that says, I'm God and you got to do what I say. It's God saying, I love you. You are, you are my child. Right? You're my kid and I love you. Just do what I say because I want goodness for you. Trust me, even when it doesn't make any sense. Right? And so part of this, this conversation here is this religious authority and leadership does not trust God. Right? They certainly don't trust Jesus. Right? They don't trust that if their system gets upended, it's going to be okay. Right? This system is their Isaac. And here's Jesus saying, we've got we to put this thing on the pyre and burn it. Right? Not that dramatic necessarily. Right? But the question is, God says that to each and every one of us in various ways. And that doesn't mean that everything that goes wrong and every uh, trial that you face is a test from God. But there are some. But whether it's a test from God or just something that life has brought up, are you going to trust do you trust that he has authority over all things and that he is good and loving and will bring you through it? Right? Yes. And if you don't trust, then God doesn't have any chance to show you yeah. that he can come through. Because yeah. really, that was the point, I think, of the whole Isaac story is that God came through even, yes. even if he was crazy, even if Abraham was crazy, and I wonder if he wasn't. <laughs> but... but God said, I don't care. I've made a covenant with this guy. I'm putting a ram in the thicket. Right. 
Yeah, and absolutely. It was a, it was a, it's a public declaration of a God who's made a covenant promise to Abraham and therefore all of his people, and an Abraham who represents the people who will trust God no matter what. And God comes through. And the entire history of the Old Testament is that. Jesus is that. It may not be what you expect, but God comes through. God comes through to redeem. And when you turn your back and you don't trust his authority, when you don't trust his goodness, you get in trouble, as Israel did over and over and over. If you will recognize his authority, not as a domineering, angry God, but rather a good, loving God who has the power and authority over all things and, and promises to take care of you, come what may, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. I guarantee it. It's going to be challenging. I guarantee it, right? But it's what's necessary for God to do what God needs to do, right? God can't show you the ram if you don't walk through the, the motions, and the heartache, and the tension, right? If we want to change this world as a people of God, we've got to be willing to toss some tables. We have to be willing to submit ourselves to the authority of God, to work together to find His purpose in this time and this place, to be a community, right? To love one another and to love every single person that walks in that door, right? I was, we're going real long, Anne's going to yell at me, Right? I was trying to fall asleep last night, thinking about today, right? And I was thinking about this room, right? And I don't say this enough, but I'm here because God put me here, right? And one of the things God has done for me is he has given me, and this is going to sound corny, and, I, and forgive me if you think this is cheesy, I love you guys, right? I'm, I'm, last night I'm going to bed with, with flashing through your heads and your stories, and I'm not going to out you all, right? But many of you in this room, We've sat down and we've had conversations, and I've watched people struggle, go through heartache, go through physical pain, right? Recovery, life circumstances where they th you, there's, it's just darkness, right? And I've watched God bring you through it, right? And I've sat back at, and many times and thought, God, I don't know what to do here, right? All I know is to be here and to listen and to, to tell them that you love them, but you're going to have to do something here. And I've gotten to witness that happen in this very room. Whether you're new a year or you've been here 80 years, right? The same is true, right? And part of the problem that we have, or at least that I've experienced since I've been here, is we're so used to our liturgy and our ways of doing things. We don't tell each other that, right? You all don't know the church as I know the church, Right? I'm having trouble looking at one of you and finding someone that I don't know God has been active in your life. And I have watched you be faithful. I have watched God come through for you. Right? And, and coming here and being here has, has meant some sacrifices for us and my, fam my family, right? But I'll tell you, absolutely, trust in that call. Trust that God is here for you. And the blessing and the benefit, the return is hundredfold, right? Lay it on the table, right? Put it before God. Allow God to toss the tables in your life so that you might get to the blessing, right? I hope today is the first in many days of the type of community and conversation we are. I mean, does this feel different today, right? We've laughed, we've joked, 
I'm even seeing some tears, right? And there are people, there have been some interesting comments this week as, as words getting out. You know, and, and one, I'm not going to out anybody individually, but one of the comments that kind of struck me is, uh, that would never be for me. It looks like a meeting or a, a, a counseling session, right? I'm like, what, what does that say, right? That we, we would think that church is just a place where I come in and I sit and I sing some songs and I hear a message and I go home, but let's not talk to each other. Let's not bear each other's burdens. Let's not come in here when we're broken and say, community of God, brothers and sisters, I have a trouble, Right? The reason people leave church is because we're just playing. We're just playing. And it doesn't matter if you're a high church liturgy or you're new age, new age is the wrong word, but something different that's a little more feely. If we're just playing, God doesn't want it. If, if worse, if we're going through the motions in order to just prop up the institution, God's got no time for that, right? God wants a people, the church is not a building. This building, these pews, these chairs, these uh, communion tables and altars and the woodwork, it's beautiful. It's not the church, right? And so it's today and from this day forward, let's make a covenant with one another that we're done playing church, whatever that means for you. It's time to get real. We get real. We find God here and we invite other people to be part of that. Watch out. We don't have enough chairs, right? But more importantly, the numbers, right? Watch what it does in people's lives. Because like I said, I can walk around this room and I, you know, I see God working in every single one of your lives in various ways. It's real. And it's time that we get together and we worship the God that is that God. We acknowledge the things that are going on in our lives, that we become the family that God created to be, created the world to be. God, Jesus came and died in order to create a family, right? Not a bunch of individuals sitting in a church, never talking to each other, never looking at each other, never laughing at each other, right? This is real, right? It's real for me, and I hope it's real for you, all right? Let's say prayer and sing a quick song and go have lunch. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that your son is a son who has authority, Right? We thank you that he is the one who comes to make all things right. But we recognize this morning, Lord, that on our path to making things right, we must change. We must change individually. We must change corporately. We must change the way in which we approach a time like this. We must change the way we view your call to go into this world. We have to change the way we see the world. Um, so, Lord, we just ask for your vision as we continue this year to rethink the way we are doing church, the way we have done church. We just ask that you continually be in the midst of it. Speak to us, show us the actions that we need to take, the changes we must make, uh, the people we must become in order to see the revival, the reignition of your, your people, your place here on earth. Lord, we just ask that you would do that for us. We stand ready to be obedient, to recognize your authority. We just ask that you make good on your covenant promise to be here with us. We ask all this in the name of your Son, the power of your Spirit. Amen.